Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Um, thank you for having me here. It's a real pleasure. It's an honor to be here at the uh, NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. I have been reading about it, hearing about it for so long. The fabulous book collection, which I got to see in its entirety upstairs, is uh, of the Library of Arabic Literature, which is so important internationally, uh, outside of literary studies and Middle East studies, but just important. Uh, so it's such a great tribute to this institute and to Philip Kennedy's work. Um, very impressive and a thrill to be here. Um, it is um, the, the title of the talk, um, Trump Twitter and Circulation, and I've given you my actual Twitter handle. I hope somebody is good enough to live tweet it. I've invited one person, <laughs> but there you have it if you want it. Um, is, um, is, as you'll see, I'll, I'll wrap in a little bit of the argument of this, of my new book, uh, After the American Century, and the argument there a little bit into the talk um, later on because it's sort of a postscriptum to it. Um, the book has just come out a couple months ago in paper. So today I will argue that the age of Trump has ushered in a reorganization of the way American culture circulates through the world, and in particular, the relationship between American popular culture and US politics, and why that matters. Like any seismic change in cultural history, this has been in the works for some time with multiple actors. The age of Trump is not produced only by Trump himself, although he has an outsized role in it. Still, I'm most interested in the effects. Uh, I will argue that the global circulation of Donald Trump's political rhetoric ruptured and collapsed a crucial divide between American popular culture and US politics. And under Trump, and in large part because of Trump, the US political system itself has become a horrible form of global entertainment. Finally, I will suggest that this reorganization marks the postscript to the American century, um, that which comes after a 60-year period during which, according to an influential, if problematic, essay, an argument by Henry Luce in 1941, um, during which the attractiveness of American culture allegedly had positive political benefits for the United States. In other words, we're witnessing a seismic, change, a seismic shift in a sustaining, if fraught, relationship between culture and politics, between what has been called soft power and hard power. Can you hear me okay with this microphone? Okay. No. Ah. I'm telling, I'm, I'm mic'd up, so if you guys can hear me. Okay, I will keep talking and the audio geniuses will work on this. Let us know, okay? Is that any better? Can you, I can't see you guys anymore. Is that any better now? Okay. You guys hear good over there? Okay over there? Yes, okay, sorry. Um, so this argument before I get into it, and, and, and tell me if you don't hear me, make some sign because there's wonderful guys who can help fix this. Um, this argument is built on a few premises that I'd first want to be helpful to lay out before we begin. First, that there is an intimate relationship between the rise of digital technologies and the social formations that organize us how we relate to each other. 
In fact, more largely that there's a relationship between the history of technology and society itself, which of course matters deeply, profoundly to politics. Now this seems easy enough to glimpse in retrospect if we think of the impact, for example, that the Industrial Revolution had on the rise of Enlightenment philosophy, uh, for example, in Europe, or and in turn on political revolutions and civil wars in the late 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and uh, or the ways in which the invention of the internal combustion engine in the 19th century and its development for automobiles and aircraft led to the rise of the petroleum industry and the societies and cities that grew up so spectacularly here in the Gulf. Um, the technology I'm interested in is the rise of supercomputing and digital technologies, particularly after, let's say, 1973, a date we often attribute to the advent of globalization. These technologies had an, inf an impact on many aspects of globalization, um, which I take to be the transnational flow of kind of following, for, if for those of you who have studied uh, a Potterized classic formulation, kind of the transnational flow of finances, ideas, peoples, technologies, and, and media. Um, these technologies had an impact on many aspects of globalization, including the transnational flows of capital. Um, but I'm particularly interested in how they led to new forms of communication and the ways in which culture circulated through the world, from satellite television to digital piracy. In particular, the development of an interactive internet, which in late 2004, in particular when we started to refer to something called Web 2.0, which was not itself a new thing, but a, a new way of interacting with the internet, um, with user-generated content, social media, um, and a rich internet experience. And then around the same time or shortly thereafter, uh, smartphone technology, which would have a profound effect on social organization itself. The fact that um, any of you in the room could be FaceTiming or Skyping at the same time as you're listening to me or texting someone across the world or putting on Twitter what I say, uh, for example, profoundly affects the way that we interrelate, the way we think of ourselves as human what that impact would be on politics is what I'm interested in. The first iPhone, it's the 10-year anniversary of the release of the first iPhone uh, in 2007, and that's the same year that Twitter started generating buzz at the South by Southwest Interactive Conference, what they call its tipping point. It was developed in 2006. Um, so we're in the middle of this digital revolution, and it is not, I think, incidental that we've seen the expression of revolutionary impulses around the world during it which whether they have been successful or not, let's say 2009 in, in Iran, um, or 2010, 2011 in North Africa and the Middle East, um, are in some way built on people finding a voice that they did not have before, and now they think they have. Whether they have it or not, the technology is related to that. And this is not to say, uh, and I'm not gonna talk about this part of this here, but I did talk about this in the book, um, that's not to say that Twitter or Facebook created these revolutions, but that there's an intimate relationship, not just to the technology, but to the idea of thinking you have a voice. Okay. That Twitter would be the preferred form of someone in the position of the most powerful individual in the world would after all be important, sorry, will after all be important. And it is profoundly linked to this social reorganization. This is a mechanism that should have been should be the, 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 the access to the world of the powerless, but it's the preferred form of someone who should be allegedly the most powerful individual is quite interesting. 
Second premise, I believe that there's a relationship between popular culture, entertainment, and politics, global politics. I'm particularly interested in the ways in which with, and the ways uh, in which American popular culture relates to US foreign policy, which was the premise of Henry Luce's famous 1941 essay, The American Century, which I'll discuss briefly at the end of the lecture. But this is not, of course, limited to the United States, this collision of popular culture and political culture. Um, the song Alam Qatar, or Teach Qatar, released last week by several popular Saudi singers, including Mohammed Abdo, is an explicit place where popular culture overlaps with political culture. And I'm just, how many of you are following this? Just curious for my own sake, know what I'm talking about there? Okay, oh, I'm surprised, it's quite a big thing. You should Google it if you don't know. It's just this weekend, um, it's quite interesting. And I thank someone who I won't name here who told me about it, and now I'm, fast, now I'm obsessed. Um, anyway, this song released last week by several popular Saudi singers is an explicit place where popular culture overlaps with political culture and some of the dismay that has generated, some of the profound dismay that it's generating right now, this weekend, uh, in the region is drawn from the popularity of the singers involved and the ways in which political antagonisms are expressed or cross over into the cultural realm. It seems to be yet another red line that has been crossed lately. Many analysts of foreign affairs tend to relegate understanding culture as irrelevant to the hard work of political science. The humanities and the humanistic social sciences are all well and good from this perspective, but secondary when it comes to understanding or negotiating international relations. I'm con increasingly convinced that this is an error and a costly one. Cultural products and debates over them help to explain the world we live in with a nuance that is missing from social science formulas or the distant perspectives that media talking heads take. The perils of not attending to the realm of culture are significant, especially because political scientists are notoriously bad at predicting actual outcomes and future developments. Finally, last premise, I believe that the form or the medium in which an author or a political actor chooses to express herself or himself is deeply inscribed in the meaning of the work or the utterance or to put it differently, that the form and content are not easily separable. The use of Twitter by Trump with its characteristic 140 character limit um, and the way that sarcasm propels language on Twitter better. You can try if you've tried to do Twitter and haven't succeeded, <laughs> by which I mean not that you didn't type it in right. You can figure out how to get it down to 140 characters, for God's sake. Um, but that you tried and nothing, nobody like, picked up on it. Might be because you don't have enough followers, but it might also because you didn't get the tone right. And Trump is actually very good at that. So the way that sarcasm um, propels language on Twitter and its speed and trajectory is as much a part of its meaning as the frequently misspelled words that Trump types himself, themselves. But I would like to begin not with a tweet, um, but a very traditional form of presidential utterance a public address or a speech. For it was there that the rupture of the gap separating politics and popular culture was finally affected. It is not incidental. The presidential address to a joint session of Congress um, has an intimate relationship to the medium of television, the medium that had been so important in the later years of the so-called American century, all those reruns of Dallas 
I used to live in Morocco, and everywhere, every dry cleaner was named Dallas. All the older ones were named Dallas, or various television shows, for example. All those reruns of Dallas or Baywatch. Do you remember when David Hasselhoff said that he had a, created the, uh, like, had an important role in Iranian uh, post-revolutionary politics because of Baywatch? Um, Baywatch, Beverly Hills 90210, um, and central to the argument of the modern, uh, the landmark of modernization theory by Daniel Lerner in the 1950s, the passing of traditional society in which the idea of television and the arrival of media in various places in his multi-field study in the Middle East in the 50s uh, would somehow be connected intimately to people's ideas about becoming what he called modern and be very influential on in modernization theory. Television, um, of course, has been at the center of Trump's own rise on, as a celebrity uh, on reality television. So the rupture had been coming for months, if not years, but we can also date it to a precise moment. It was a strange occasion in the House chamber in the US Capitol building, Donald Trump's first address to a joint session of Congress, February 28th, 2017. I happened to be in the Capitol building that day. Um, there had been the buzz throughout the day of a day leading up to a joint session. We were kind of lobbying foreign language um, policy and there was meeting with people in their congressional offices and everyone was very excited because it was gonna be a joint session, the first one under Trump's presidency. A lot seemed at stake a month after, um, after a month that had left Donald Trump with the lowest approval ratings of a new president since Gallup began measuring these things in 1953. In the gallery at the House chamber sat Corinne Owens, the w widow of a US Navy SEAL named William Ryan Owens, Ryan Owens had died just a month earlier in a raid in Yemen ordered by President Trump in his first days in office. For those paying attention, the raid was widely criticized. 23 civilians, including a small child, were killed in addition to Owens, but not its alleged target, an Al-Qaeda leader named Qasem al-Rimi. In its analysis, the New York Times wrote, quote, everything that could go wrong did. Now there had been continuing controversy. Ryan Owens' father had called for an investigation and refused to meet with President Trump when his son's body was delivered to Dover Air Force Base. Trump himself disavowed responsibility, even though it was reported that he had been convinced to order the raid by Defense Secretary Mattis and Chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff when they told him that President Obama never would have ordered the raid. Some of you remember this. Um, in uh, an interview with Fox that aired the morning of the joint session, Trump hid behind the generals. Quote, this is, the, this is Trump, this was some, this, this is a direct quote, there's no ellipses, the way I'm gonna read it. <laughs> this was something that was, you know, just, they wanted to do, and they came to see me and they explained what they wanted to do, the generals who are very respected. Trump continued, and they lost Ryan. End of quote. However, that evening, at an address to the joint session, Trump introduced the widow of Ryan Owens and celebrated him. Trump called Ryan Owens, quote, a warrior and a hero battling against terrorism and securing our nation. The room broke into applause. Corinne Owens stood, wept openly, her hands clasped, breathing deeply, looking to the heavens occasionally. I've decided I want to show you, uh, we'll watch this together in a moment. Um, a couple of minutes, a minute. After 30 seconds, but this is what I want you to look for. After 30 seconds, she will be seen mouthing, thank you. 
and according to the Washington Post, a few tried to retake their seats. After a full minute, in the words of Post writer Jenna Johnson, quote, Owens struggled to smile at the crowd through the tears that kept coming. The president kept clapping, staring up at her. America bore witness to the raw pain of her loss. After 75 seconds, some looked to the president for a signal of when this might end. Trump kept clapping. Now, Trump has been known to time the length of his ovations, which he considers a measure of support comparable to polls. After one minute and 42 seconds, the president of the United States spoke, and what he said is chilling. But first, let's just watch it together. About two minutes. Intelligence that will lead to many more victories in the future against our enemy. Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity. Thank you. Thank you. Ryan is looking down right now, you know that, and he's very happy because I think he just broke a record. <laughs> the All right, is it back on? Okay. And Ryan is looking down right now, you know that, and he's very happy because I think he just broke a record. Now, the record, of course, is record for applause in a joint session of Congress, uh, as if this were some category in the new edition of the Guinness Book of World Records. I do not know if anyone is keeping track of these records, but we now have a new standard against which to measure them, one minute, 42 seconds, like some new reality sports show, the political X Games. 
Now, the reaction was, the response was mixed, of course, but the initial consensus was that Trump had succeeded in acting presidential during this speech. Van Jones, and in this moment in particular, Van Jones, the well-known CNN commentator, former advisor to President Obama and critic of Trump said, quote, he became president of the United States in that moment, period. This is Van Jones, who in the early hours of November 9th, 2016 on CNN, famously called the apparent election of Trump a nightmare and wondered how parents would explain it to their children. But Van Jones, the same Van Jones now said, quote, that was one of the most extraordinary moments you have ever seen in American politics, period. Others in less prominent venues criticized the manipulation of the widow, and of course, Trump continues to have historically low approval ratings. But Jones's conclusion was echoed elsewhere, as if during those one minute and 42 seconds that I made you sit through, Donald Trump transformed himself from reality show, real estate developer, businessman, into someone who understood the political theater of the office of the presidency. Now, for a moment, this is about public mourning. So needless to say, the so-called war on terror has been built on the US state's manipulation of public mourning. As scholar Donald Pease has argued in his book, The New American Exceptionalism, quote, the state fantasy of the homeland took hold by rendering the US people a captive audience to spectacular shows of force through which the state violently changed regimes in Afghanistan and Iraq, end of quote. In his remarkable reading of the public confrontation of a gold star mother, Cindy Sheehan, against President Bush outside his home in Crawford, Texas, Pease showed how individuals might reject this state fantasy. Pease argued that the death of the fantasy of the homeland took place when Cindy Sheehan, the mother, quote, publicly refused to mourn in the terms of the state discourse that justified the continuation of the violence. This was the mother who protested outside Bush's Crawford Ranch and, and who had lost her son. Sheehan, Pease argued, placed her grief outside the borders of the aggrieved homeland community bringing its emotional compact into crisis. Now, Donald Trump's relationship to what Pease called the state fantasy of the homeland had its own challengers in Khizr and Ghazala Khan, the gold star parents of Humayun Khan, um, the Pakistani-American, uh, sorry, the, a US soldier who had been killed in Iraq in 2004. You remember these parents. Um, when Khizr Khan, the Pakistani-American father of this fallen soldier, offered to give Trump his personal copy of the US Constitution during their speech at the 2016 Democratic Convention and held up a pocket-sized copy, he provoked a crisis for the candidate, and not because it was small and with some kind of implicit joke about hands. Um, um, I'm not joking. <laughs> um, he provoked a crisis for the candidate and a trap that Trump fell right into And he's, as he spent the next several days attacking the Khans, leveraging the archive of Orientalism and anti-Muslim racism to lash back at them. That the Democratic Convention employed televisual language. The Khans were on stage, Mr. Khan handing his pocket constitution from the podium as if to a small man. And Trump's flailing response inhabited the social media space of Twitter is part of my story. But I also bring up the Khans to suggest that in manipulating Corinne Owens in his February 28th address to the joint session, Trump was settling scores with both the Khans explicitly and Cindy Sheehan implicitly. 
But what is remarkable about the political moment of political theater with Corinne Owens and why it gives such extended attention is how it achieves on a domestic level what I argue has been happening globally in places far off the effective radar map of the Trump administration. And that is the collision of entertainment, the Trump of Celebrity Apprentice with American geopolitics, the Trump who ordered the raid in Yemen. Trump harnessed the power of the joint session as reality television and as policy-making engine of the state and scrambled them. In other words, by extending the applause for the fallen soldier and his widow into a reality television record-breaking event, Trump brought the logics of the entertainment realm in which he had achieved global recognition, the Trump of Celebrity Apprentice, to the space where US presidents before him had publicly leveraged, pub, sorry, had, had previously leveraged public mourning to justify and continue war in the Middle East. It's well known to anyone who's watched a State of the Union, these long applause lines and showing other victims or widows or people related to, to fallen uh, acts of the state. But here he was colliding these two, right? Trump achieved the blurring of the distinction between American popular culture and US foreign policy in the Capitol building itself, now turned into a theater or stage set where future presidents could attempt to break the record Trump had just now named. You can imagine a big digital stopwatch placed above the podium for future State of the Union addresses, the House chamber, now a TV stage set. Behind Trump sat, of course, the Vice President and the Speaker of the House, in which this very odd American tradition of watching these two government officials watch the event that we are watching um, transpires. And by the way, there's a little meme going on in the last couple of days of the son, one of the sons of Donald Trump who has his photographs of his children facing out. I mean, it's an, apparently an, an authentic photograph. And people are saying, Why, who puts the photographs of their children facing out as opposed to looking at them? And so this idea of what we're watching here, I mean, I understand why they sit there in this way, the vice president presiding over it. But as a television event, which is now what these speeches have become, it's increasingly odd, and in this case, it was particularly odd. When Paul Ryan responded to Trump's comment that a record had been broken by chuckling, chuckling visibly, replacing the horror of the death of Ryan Owens and those 23 unmentioned Yemenis with the admiration of his record-breaking act of television, the deal was done. Part two, what is it, how does this matter to global affairs? We have seen a confusion of entertainment and politics before, of course, most notably during the presidency of Ronald Reagan, our first movie star leader, whose presidency and the confusion of the simulacra of the presidency, of the, of the president with the acts of state, as well as his repetition of lines from the movies, Reagan, of course, did with panache. Uh, and this led Reagan at times, sorry, this led, that was a long sentence, sorry, it's too long a sentence. Um, Reagan, of course, did those with panache, which led at times to the overlap of Hollywood fantasies and Cold War statecraft. Given the role classic Hollywood had played in imagining the post-World War II order from Casablanca with its roulette wheel, um, uh, uh, this, was, uh, this could be seen as no accident. Reagan's strategic defense initiative announced in 1983 quickly became known as Star Wars by its critics and is a potent example of this just as uh, Reagan's own Star Wars-inspired moniker for the Soviet Union, the evil empire, um, took off. 
Now, there have been moments in political theater, too, uh, when presidents were not actors, many of them during presidential campaigns, where the power and charisma of popular culture has made its way into political discourse. In 1988, George H. Bush famously invoked Clint Eastwood's Make My Day line uh, in the 1988 presidential debate with Michael Dukakis. He did more then than quote a famous film line, uh, and one that Reagan himself had used often in his rhetoric. In Michael Rogan, the, the late theor political theorist from Berkeley, has a classic reading of, of that debate. Um, Bush also summoned the forgotten raci racist logic of the Clint Eastwood film. And I was thinking about showing you the clip from it, but what the argument is is that in the, the famous moment when Clint Eastwood says, make my day, um, he's about to shoot an African-American kind of guy mugging somebody. And it's, it's this race. The, the argument is that there's a kind of racist fantasy going on there of shooting the black man that George H. Bush was pulling up. Now, that sounds absurd to you, except that at the moment of that campaign, if you remember that, um, the, 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 it was the decisive blow because he was linking his own kind of aggressive you know, masculinity at that point with Dukakis's prison furlough program, prison furlough program, and the, and the figure of Willie Horton, African-American uh, guy who had been released from jail uh, to commit further crimes, uh, which was a big centerpiece of those debates and kind of a turning point in order to seal the deal on the Democratic candidate who had already been defeated by a racist ad campaign leveraged by the Republican Party under Lee Atwater. But still, something seems different here, and not merely because of the shift from Reagan as movie star to Trump as character from reality TV and page six headlines. There's, of course, quite a lot of rhetoric in response to the rise of Donald Trump, both as political candidate and as president. I have also contributed to it, uh, and I've also been caught up in it. When I published a piece in Salon on the circulation of Trump's anti-Muslim rhetoric um, in Muslim-majority Morocco in December 2015, where I was when he first, what happened to be in Morocco when he first uh, started trying out his Muslim ban as a candidate, and then I wrote a piece about the response, um, I, I became the subject of a nasty piece in Breitbart, well before that website was a household word signifying right-wing hack jobs. The piece, which was supplemented by more than 1,200 trollish comments <laughs> overnight, and I knew that from Twitter because I received a message in the morning to check Breitbart and see that there had been an article written about me that wasn't there the night before, and there was already more than 1,000 comments. Uh, I read the first dozen or so, and then I had my son read the rest for me as an unpaid research assistant which was a great way to both rise and fall simultaneously in your child's esteem. Um, but uh, but, what, but what, came, what came quickly apparent as I read the first couple of, of dozen of the comments was that the real target was not me for daring to write such an article, uh, the author of the piece, and more a young Moroccan female student who had asked the question that became used as the title of the, uh, as the headline for the article itself about Trump. Why Islam? Why are Muslims considered the worst by Americans? The space of the Breitbart comment section allowed a form of racist Orientalism. Um, those are not the same thing, of course, racism and Orientalism, but they're intimately related increasingly in, in American discourse with which to propel the Trump candidacy. But there's something here about a limited vocabulary, brief utterances, comments, and tweets that is not only characteristic of Trump's language it, it, him, itself uh, and his appeal, and, or, and its appeal, but of the way that he leverages social media. He has been both successful on Twitter, but also gotten himself into trouble by using it. His chief of staff, John Kelly, would like to curb it. But it is part and parcel of the collapsed distance between US politics and global entertainment that I'm charting here. 
Peter Gordon, in an essay on Trump and the rise of authoritarianism published in the journal Boundary 2, notes that there seems to be an inverse relationship between Trump's noted inability to create sentences and the effusion, I'm speaking now as an English professor, complete sentences, um, and the effusion of rhetoric by his opponents. Quote, for his admiring crowds, Trump is refreshing precisely for his ineloquence, for his swagger, but for his opponents, Trump seems to occasion a kind of hyper-elegance, as if one could perform through language the mind's distance from mindlessness, end of quote. I would add that this effusion of critique and discussion seems to imagine that rhetoric, that arguments, and there is a lot, as you know, written um, about rhetoric and about Trump's you know, kind of rise and use of language. Um, it seems to imagine that rhetoric could defeat Trump and his intellectual restlessness. But that could not be, of course, since Trump re relies on an effusion of rhetoric to make sense at all. His noted inability to find the vocabulary to finish many of his thoughts, uh, and I, but I don't mean that, I mean this descriptively, I don't mean this, you know, I, mean, I actually mean this descriptively, this has been noted, um, in, uh, turns instead to the pre-existing archive of images, whether of racism, Islamophobia, sexism, et cetera. In his references to the Middle East and to Muslims, whether in his notorious comments about the Khan parents and his speculation about why Ghazala Khan did not speak on the podium of the Democratic Convention, he references an Orientalist archive, which he draws on but does not originate. He is the product of 21st century Orientalism. Now, notably, some of the most significant proponents and practitioners of 21st century Orientalism seem to be backing off or reacting in response to Trump. Um, I, as I argued in an essay about the latest season of the Homeland, of the showcase uh, series Homeland, I don't know if how many of you have watched this here, or if it makes it here, um, in a piece I published in the Los Angeles Review of Books this past spring, this was a show which we considered in the realm of culture to be what I would call 21st century Orientalism. It, you know, the kind of creation of villains in which Muslim villains, Arab villains, Iranian villains are always can be predictably expected to be the bad guys no matter what happens. That's in the, its earlier seasons. But in this most recent season, if you happen to be watching it, um, the show's creators seem to become notably uncomfortable about the series' status as a mirror and mouthpiece for America's doings abroad. And the sixth season attempts an about face in its representation of Muslim characters. It's quite interesting. And you know, since I referenced Orientalism, uh, and the idea, the idea would be that contemporary popular culture, Homeland would be one example, but there are any number of programs, television shows, there's a resurgence of Orientalism in the United States uh, since not this September 11th, but September 11th, uh, 2001, um, the idea, the argument would have been in the wake of Edward Said or someone that this kind of popular culture, you know, maintains or manages a, a feeling of anxiety uh, that can, can, can continually propel uh, the war on terror, the war on, on an, an affective state. Um, but what's very interesting is I think that in the wake of Donald Trump's own use of rhetoric or anti-Muslim rhetoric or Orientalist rhetoric, some of these same popular cultural uh, producers are backing away from what they were doing before. There's a sort of an about face. Okay. Um, uh, the media, especially NPR in the United States, frequently asks itself, is he crazy or is he crazy like a fox? 
as if to ask, what kind of narrative are we now in? Are we in something more like House of Cards, where everything is manipulated to some effect, which has been brought up a lot, or are we more in Dr. Strangelove? I'm of the camp that sees Trump not as an aberration, I should say, but as a symptom of the seismic changes that I'm describing elsewhere. It seems clear that the rise of Trump is directly related to, if not partially created by, the new media and social media platforms that he has thrived in. The mainstream media covers his tweets, they catalog them, they archive them. Now the New York Times in print will publish a column of them, of this digital form in this very kind of elegant way. Um, people from journalists to members of his own White House administration check his tweets or check Twitter in the morning to see if there's maybe some new policy shift that was announced as they got ready for work. And as you know, it often is the case. Um, and just as each of the successful candidates for the presidency uh, in, in recent decades seemed to understand and harness what was then the state-of-the-art new media technology, Obama's campaign eloquence thrived on the YouTube platform in 2008. Um, uh, George W. Bush outperformed Gore in the casual town meetings um, of 2000. Uh, and though Al Gore had claimed to invent the internet, it was not yet interactive, user content-driven space that it would be after Web 2.0. Oh, no one laughed at my Al Gore joke. I was trying to give equal opportunity, a bipartisan joking and mockery, but anyway. Um, what Trump's fascination with Twitter portends is not only a subject for humor about his short attention span and obsession with responding to pop cultural slights, comments about Rosie O'Donnell, Meryl Streep, or individual SNL skits. And by the way, we're about to see the new season of Saturday Night Live come back, and it will be quite interesting to see how humor uh, and the kind of uh, satires of Trump plays into the discourse around the president with the summer away from that. Because it was actually, I think, quite, quite useful to him, <laughs> um, despite the fact that he was, seemed to be always upset by it. Um, and, um, but it is, of course, our own inability not to be diverted, not to pay attention, not to live in short bursts of attention that is at stake. I recommend um, Adam Alter's new book called Irresistible, uh, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked um, to You. Um, it starts by the premise that Steve Jobs, maybe now you've heard it in the coverage of it, never allowed his own children to have iPads. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a chilling kind of book. Write it down on your phone. <laughs> um, but popular culture and political culture had already collapsed in the United States. By the mid-2000s, more Americans got their news from comedy show hosts like Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Uh, Emily Nussbaum argue, uh, argued cogently in The New Yorker in January that what helped Trump win the election was his comic style, a comic style reminiscent of Rodney Dangerfield Don Rickles, and Andrew Dice Clay. It's not that Trump was particularly funny, and if you've seen those kind of uh, correspondent, like the Al Smith dinner where they kind of stand up, Hillary Clinton was much funnier than Trump on the actual comedic stage. But the argument is that it's difficult to turn away from his particular persona, and so she compares it to those kind of shock comedians. It's a very, it was a very good essay, I think. Okay, part three. Maybe I'll, part three is the last part. <laughs> Now, I have said that there is an impact on the global. What is the global effect? What is the relationship of American popular culture and foreign relations in the first place? We need a new way to understand 
the global reach of American culture in the digital age. And this is the premise of my book, After the American Century, The Ends of U.S. Culture in the Middle East, in which I examine how American culture moves through North Africa and the Middle East in the digital age. There I argue that because of the ways in which culture circulates and digitally and the changed geopolitical status of the United States in the 21st century, the first decade and a half of the 21st century represents a coda to what was called the American century. By this I mean that American culture and cultural products, long popular globally and assumed to have a positive message or benefit to US politics, were generally taken up by individuals in ways that detach the cultural product from its American reference. I had the pleasure of walking around the mall, one of the malls yesterday, and being overwhelmed, of course, as I knew I would be, as I always am, by all of the American fast food or film posters or now Snapchat icons on everything, all examples of American cultural products that are very popular here as they are in most other places. The question would be, is there some contradiction um, in liking such American, absorbing, consuming, popular culture and the source of the reference, that it's in American popular culture. And this was the, the premise of the book. Um, the idea, um, um, and so the, the point is that this, that this relationship is shattered in the 21st century, that no, it's not a problem if you're a young person who happens to be against US politics in the wake of 2003 invasion of Iraq, for example, to consume American culture, whether it's film, social media, fast food, and so on. As you know, there have been boycotts of American cultural products, uh, but this, this relationship seems fractured. Now, that presumption that there is an intimate relationship is the premise of Henry Luce's 1941 essay, The American Century, and which, under, uh, which underlies much cultural diplomacy through the Cold War and to the present. Now, in the book, the little plug for the book, I look at a series of cases in North Africa and the Middle East, especially in Cairo, Casablanca, and Tehran, where I did the bulk of my research, and I look at debates over movies in Iran and Morocco, censored Egyptian comics and cyberpunk fiction, um, the huge impact of YouTube and social networking software on culture and society, all of these American cultural products par excellence. And I try to make sense of the fragmented meanings that American cultural objects have and forms now take in new and frequently unpredicted locations. And in so doing, I was trying to map out what a period after the American century looks like, and not just for the sake of cultural criticism. Um, as I've argued, I think we need to take much more seriously the role that understanding culture plays in geopolitics. Um, as I started this research a decade ago, I was interested in the following paradox. US hegemony was in decline politically and economically, but the products of American culture were ubiquitous. In the wake of the acts of September 11, 2001, New York Times cultural critic Alan Riding had suggested that the United States, quote, rerun our Cold War cultural diplomacy. And the State Department quickly did so, ramping up cultural diplomacy to bring cultural events and music festivals to countries such as Morocco and Egypt and across the airwaves via Radio Sawa, um, which was broadcast in local dialects of Arabic, Radio Farda in Persian. Um, and satellite television stations such as Al-Hura in Arabic. But many of these products and events lacked the subtlety of Cold War era cultural programming. When, this, when the famous Porgy and Bess tour traveled to Moscow in 1955, brought an acclaimed theatrical production to the Soviets, um, 
In 2005, the State Department brought the French, something called the Friendship Fest to Marrakesh, which brought Christian rock to Muslim audiences in a way that forced local populations to confront the exporting nation's explicit politics. As Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said in 2011, commenting on a state-sponsored tour to Damascus of hip-hop artist Chen Lo and the Liberation Family, quote, hip-hop is America. I think we have to use every tool at our disposal. Now, Clinton's comments not only make visible the ways in which the US state mobilized American culture, especially African-American culture, but also suggest uh, a papering over of the more uncomfortable US political acts. As Hisham Aidi commented on News Network's Al Jazeera's website at the time, despite the fact that rap provided a soundtrack to, to the North African revolts, the role of hip hop should not be exaggerated just as the role of Twitter and Facebook um, in the Arab Middle East uprising shouldn't be either. Aidi pointed to the ways in which authoritarian states such as uh, Tunisia under Ben Ali and Syria under Bashar al-Assad had mobilized hip hop with Western support. Um, so my early sense was that such projects um, do more harm than good by their assumption of a unified Muslim world that needed to be persuaded of America's goodwill and tolerance. And news reports, of course, through the decade challenged this glossy view, obviously. Um, but once were, what once were autonomous cultural products now carried with them the explicit taint of American politics. By being sponsored, they now somehow some had an explicit political meaning. And this taint extended beyond explicit American cultural exports. In 2002, a large-scale boycott of American products took off uh, in, the, in the region. At times, the limits of what counted as an American product became vague, which, uh, an ambiguity which took on comic proportions when a Saudi business owner of a popular donut chain, House of Donuts, do you have House of Donuts? Okay, I've, I, uh, with 180 franchises, he was worried about the impact of the boycott on his business, and he publicly offered $300,000 to anyone who could prove that his two-decade-old business was American. And I think the past, the, uh, the, the billboard said, like, Mr. Mr. Donut is an Arab, I think was the, was the thing. So the idea that a donut, right? I mean, this is silly, and I, can't, I, mean, I know it's silly, but the donut was American. People wanted to boycott the House of Donuts, but it wasn't actually an American business, was an example of what I'm talking as an American cultural form. It was identified with, did you feel guilty eating a donut from House of Donuts if you were boycotting the United States? Now, as silly as the House of Donuts challenge was, the man had a point. Why boycott a Saudi donut? Can a donut be Saudi? <laughs> Is Moroccan hip hop or any of the global hip, outs, hip hops out there American? Now, so the title of this book refers to sometime after the American century, as if an historical period is over. Uh, and yet, to many, it seems that we are surrounded by or overwhelmed by the continuation of a militarism associated with that phrase, resonating from the rise of the US to superpower status with the end of World War II through the Cold War with its many hot spells uh, into the muscular period since September 11th, and now extending into a yet more violent future. The campaign slogan of former Republican candidate Marco Rubio called for, quote, a new American century. Quote, are you ready for a new American century? Rubio asked and invoked a neoconservative vision of what that means. In a discussion in the Council on Foreign Relations on 2015, Rubio explained what he meant by a new American century. And it's amazing. Quote, we must recognize that our nation is a global leader, not because 
not simply because it has superior arms, but also because it has superior aims. America is the first power in history motivated by a desire to expand freedom rather than simply to expand its own territory, end of quote. This desire, this collision, collusion, collision and collusion of arms and aims and expanding of freedom and expanding territory is very rhetorically powerful. It's also very chilling, I find, uh, personally. Uh, but this desire to expand freedom uh, came at a cost. I mean, it's language of marketing. I mean, actually, what you see from a rhetorical, you know, is the language of marketing starts to in, come into political rhetoric in moments like that, it seems to me, kind of the ambiguities of using expand in this way, but I won't go further into that because I'm almost at my end. This desire to expand freedom, of course, came at, at a cost as the past 14 years um, in, since the invasion and occupation of Iraq in the name of freedom, Operation, in, uh, the explicit name, Operation Enduring Freedom, is the official name of the war on terror from 2001 to 2014, followed in Afghanistan by Operation Freedom Sentinel, and of course, Operation Iraqi Freedom, 2003-2010. So that's naming, marketing. So the unintended consequence um, of this expansion of America's freedoms, the export of American exceptionalism, led to the rise of, of one of the most restrictive forces in the recent history of the Middle East. And I'm referring to ISIS. Um, and notably, Daesh or ISIS harnessed marketing techniques and the savvy use of social networking media itself. A 2016 RAND report concluded that while, quote, opponents of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria are six times greater in number on Twitter than ISIS supporters, those sympathetic to the group are more active on the social media platform. The same year, Wired magazine put it more, put it more starkly, why ISIS is winning the social media war. Now with satellite technology and the internet, the circulation of culture and news, particularly bad news, is accelerated exponentially. To the young Moroccans I spoke to as Trump propounded the first draft of what would become his Muslim ban back in December 2015 as a candidate, Trump's anti-Muslim comments were the latest sign that American culture had become increasingly hateful toward them. The global effects of speech were profound and will be long-lasting. So what would it mean to talk about a period after the American century in this context? What does it mean to suggest that we are at such a point after? The phrase which Henry Luce famously used as the title to his editorial in a Life magazine in February 1941 was always less about a period of time than it was a logic of how culture moves through the world. The American century, as Henry Luce defined it, was a hugely influential theory of what the relationship of culture and cultural production is to geopolitics. And I don't have time to say it now, but I would love to talk to you more about that if you're interested in the historical case. Um, in the digital age, cultural products move differently, and they are taken up by audiences in the Middle East, North Africa, and around the world in, that shatter the logic of what Luce called the American century. And the ways in which culture moves through the world in the digital age shows that there's a different relationship of culture to contemporary politics than during the 20th century. Despite the best efforts of the US State Department to harness the charisma and potential of American culture, rerunning the Cold War cultural diplomacy in the post 9-11 era, a new generation differentiated between the cultural product products and their nation of origin. Whether it was digital recodings of Shrek, these are things I write about in the book, or localized uses of YouTube or Facebook, American cultural products jumped publics 
easily because they, could, they were circulating digitally. And they became Iranian or Moroccan without any anxiety that the United States was, this, was the source. Digital culture limited or eliminated their, um, their ability or their potential to act as soft power. But in 2012, with the massive circulation of the Innocence of Muslims YouTube video, the dark side of digital circulation would quickly erode the gap between American popular culture and the United States as a nation state. Trump's campaign not only summoned the power and logic of Twitter to evade and manipulate mainstream media, his own relationship to reality television entertainment and his use of digital media to propound messages that combined falsehoods, nightmarish representations of the foreign and conspiracy theories collapsed the distinction between American popular culture and geopolitics. And so what's particularly interesting about Trump's, about, about Twitter and about Trump's use of and association with it is that from the start, its creators debated uh, what it actually was. As co-founder Ev Williams admitted about Twitter, right on the verge of their initial public offering, it was the co-founder, quote, it wasn't clear what it was. They called it a social network. They called it microblogging. But it was hard to define because it didn't replace anything. The insight was we eventually came to was Twitter was really more of an information network than it is a social network, the end of the quote. But of course, that combination of news and social networking had yet to find its truest avatar with Donald Trump. Trump's use of Twitter, as I've argued, combined these two products and made them into a form of entertainment as news, news and politics as entertainment. What this portends is the winter of American empire and the postscriptum to the American century, within which the idea that the popularity and attractiveness of American culture had positive political benefits to the United States and should be broadcast. In the digital age of Trump and Twitter, the political system itself had become a horrible form of global entertainment. How devastating its effects will be remains to be seen but the shift is clearly visible. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.